The peace of the Lord to everybody. Thank you, and I received that. Thank you. So I'd like to show everybody my new toy. Everyone say hi to John's new toy. Today we're going to be talking about light. Now I want to tell you there's a story behind this toy. It's something that I bought off of Amazon.com, which is Amazon.com, okay? The agoraphobe's best friend, right? Amazon.com, you never have to leave your home. Everything just comes to you as you order it. After I heard about a story of what happened in the metro, those of you that know I switched jobs a few months ago, and I'm now a proud metro rider. I'm a silver line, I was going to say citizen. I'm on that thing long enough every day that I feel like a citizen. January 12th of this year, some of you know that there was a fire in the metro. Happened on the yellow line. Riders on the yellow line began texting their families that the train had stopped, the lights had gone out, and the car was filling with smoke. Some said they were told to stay put, and they dialed 911 from their cell phones. Others on the car pried the doors open, but they couldn't see well enough to leave the car. They were afraid of touching the third rail. Some didn't want to look stupid in front of other people, so they just sat there. Once the smoke really started coming in, some started coughing, some cursed, and others prayed. As breathing became difficult, some of them shared their inhalers with each other. Most lay down on the floor and waited for help. And most of you know the rest of the story. When the, the news finally broke the whole story, 84 people were in the hospital after this, and one person had died. The fire was later blamed on an electrical arcing event. Now, the biggest question that I had and that a lot of other people had after this incident was, why did they stay? Why did these people, why did they stay in the car? Why didn't they all get out? Why didn't they all try to escape? And there was an avalanche of commentary after this. And one psychologist said that in these situations, without someone to lead them, most people will just sit and do nothing. What's really needed in these situations is the emergence of an authority figure. In a moment of crisis, the emergence of an authority figure can be critical to the survival of a complacent group. And the psychologist wrote that even someone with an orange vest with a flashlight could have led the people to safety. Yeah, when we're in a dark, unfamiliar dangerous situation. We need someone with authority and light to lead us out. As Ed already said, we're doing a series on Jesus' life called Fantastic. And if you've been tracking with us, you know that we're looking at some of the events in the life of Jesus that are, they're just strange. They're odd. Some of them seem almost, things that happen almost grotesque was the word that Ed used last week. It almost seems that in these situations, what's very familiar to us especially about Jesus, those of us that track with him can almost seem unfamiliar. So we're going to look at a unique event in Jesus' life today that it's going to cause the people that know him the best a moment of shock and terror. So let's pray. 
Lord, I believe that you are with us today in this room. And there's so many things that we can't really explain that too well. But I know you're here with us. And I know that in this room, we're at so many different places with you. I know some of us, we're just stressed, God. We've got so much weight on us that we feel like we can barely breathe. And I know others of us, God, we've done things throughout the week that we shouldn't have done. We've thought things, we've looked at things, we have said things that we shouldn't have done. We ask your forgiveness for that. We want to clear that out of the way so we can hear you today. And others of us, God, we're just, we're just on the margins. We don't know where we fit. We're in that car, God, and it's starting to fill with smoke, and we don't know what to do. So, Lord, we need you today. We, <laughs> we are desperate for you, God. We need you. So take this and use this, God. Use this imperfect product. Use the, the, the words of my mouth today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we read our story today, I want to go back a week before. Jesus and his students are in a town north of Galilee in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And they have a quiet moment by themselves, and that's very rare for Jesus and his disciples. That's not a typical thing, because a lot is going on. You know, Jesus is healing people, as Ed already mentioned, driving out demons. He's basically telling evil spirits to shut up, and they're listening. He's also taken a little boy's lunch, and he's fed thousands of people with it. And the question of Jesus' identity has come up. And it's almost like a matter-of-fact conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. And he says, who, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? And his disciples have some answers for it. They say, well, Jesus, some people say that you are, you're John the Baptist. And others say that you're Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets and then Jesus asks them what is probably the most important question in all of human existence. He says, who do you say that I am? And of course, who speaks first? It's Peter. Now you have to love Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. He's the kind of guy who steps up. Other people are afraid to speak, and he has to say something. Some of you are like that. You just have to say something. You know, other people might be thinking it. You're going to say it. I haven't insulted everybody yet, have I? So he steps up, and if this were baseball, he steps up to the plate, he takes a really big swing, and he makes contact, and it's a towering home run, and he tells Jesus, you are, you're the Messiah. You're the one that our people have waited for for over a thousand years. And Jesus tells him, Peter, home run. Home run. Home run. God told you this. You didn't figure this out on your own. God told you this. Blessed are you, Simon, Peter. And there's this profound moment that I think it's sinking into all the disciples that Jesus has basically finally come right out and said, I'm the Messiah. And Peter is probably thinking, yay, I got that right. (laughs) And then Jesus ruins it. 
we have this amazing moment of positivity going on here. Do any of you in your jobs, any of you go to like, you know, management seminars and, you know, they're always focusing on positivity, right? Everything has to be positive. You know, even when you're not happy with somebody's performance, you have to be positive about it. So this is a positive moment and Jesus ruins it. He ruins it. Because he tells them, yes, I'm the Messiah. And what that means is, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be rejected, and actually I'm going to be killed. They're going to kill me. And Peter's reaction is, what? What are you talking about? Didn't I just get done telling you that you're the I mean, didn't you just get telling us that you're the Messiah? Rejected? We've got crowds of people around us, Jesus. Everybody loves you. You are the hottest ticket in town. You're healing people. No, you're not going to suffer. God forbid. Peter actually tells him this. God forbid. And Jesus says something incredibly harsh to him. Jesus says, Peter, you're acting like the devil. Get behind me. Get out of my way. You're thinking like a human and not like God. So I set this up in context for our story today because you have to know that at this time in Jesus' life, things are starting to get a little dark. And the tone of the story has changed and a shadow has fallen. So it's in this context we read. We're going to look at Matthew 17. If you have a Bible app or if you're ancient like myself and actually carry a paper thing, what is a book such as this? You can open that up, and I think we may have it on the screen, or possibly not. So we're in Matthew chapter 17, and I'm going to read for us. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, And his clothes became as white as the light. And then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but have done to him everything that they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus picks three disciples 
to go up a mountain with him, Peter, James, and John. And we know from the stories of Jesus' life, Jesus had many people uh, known as disciples. And disciple is just another word that means student. And he had at one time as many as 120, and then he had his 12, and then he had his 3. So you would expect that these three were Jesus's kind of like his special forces, right? His elite kind of spiritual giants, the spiritual athletes that he had picked. So let's take a quick look at these people because I think it's important to remember that the Bible is very honest about people that follow Jesus. So we have Peter, who was a fisherman, a very honorable profession. People need to eat. Peter was his nickname. It means rock. So Jesus basically called him Rocky. And he was anything but. Out of all the disciples, Peter was the one with no inside voice. You ever work with anybody like that? Because that can't apply to anybody in this room. But no inside voice. Peter was the kind of guy who spoke without thinking. Again, if he was a baseball player, and now that spring is upon us, we're going to use some baseball analogies. Peter either struck out or hit a home run. There was no in-between. And I have to say that to me, Peter is the most American of all the disciples. This guy is American. And then we have James and John. We expect that these would be leaders also among the disciples. James and John. Wait, James and John, weren't they the ones that got their mother to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to tell you about my boys When you become the boss, when you become king, I want my boys on your left and your right. They were also known as the sons of thunder. They had a little problem with their temper. Do you remember that? Once Jesus is going by a Samaritan village and issues with the Samaritan, hundreds of years of racial and religious tension, and they don't want to hear Jesus. And James and John say, hey, Jesus, What do you say if we call down fire on these guys? What do you say we smoke these guys? Because they disrespected you. And Jesus said, you guys have no idea what spirit you're from. So these are the people Jesus is bringing up the mountain with him. Now, mountains in the Bible are places of encounter. God meets people on mountains. Those of you that know some Old Testament, you know that Moses received the law on a mountain, Mount Sinai. Elijah the prophet heard God's still small voice on Mount Horeb. So we can anticipate that something is going to happen on this mountain. Now, I've always loved the mountains. Lisa and I, my wife, honeymooned some years ago in Colorado because we wanted to be in the Rocky Mountains, and we hiked the Rocky Mountains. We did that. We got to go back to Colorado a few years ago, And we climbed Pike's Peak in a car. (laughs) And there were times, has anybody ever done that? You ever drive up a mountain? You ever drive up a Pike's Peak, tops out, I think, about 14,000 feet? And I have to say, driving up a mountain without guardrails, doing hairpin turns, there were times when we thought we were going to meet God on the mountain. But this was a real hike. These guys, are they're actually doing this. Now, what is the mountain? You know, the Bible doesn't tell us where it is. It's unnamed. In all the three accounts of this, it's unnamed. Some scholars believe it's Mount Hermon, which is on the border of Syria and Lebanon. It kind of fits where Jesus was at the time. 
And the elevation was about 9,000 feet. So this would have been a real hike for these four. And I'm sure it took the better part of a day or maybe two days. So I'm sure they were sweaty and exhausted by the time they got up to the mountain. Now Luke's version of this story is interesting. He says they get up to the top of the mountain and Jesus is praying. He does that a lot. He's praying. And guess what his disciples are doing? They're sleeping. Does that combination sound familiar? Jesus is praying and his disciples are sleeping. A little bit further in the Jesus story, we're going to see another time when Jesus is on a mountain and he's praying and his disciples are sleeping. So what happens up there? The Bible says that Jesus was transfigured before them. It's an odd word, and it's only used here in the Gospels. The word is metamorphe. If you look at the Greek that's behind our English translation, and we get our word metamorphosis from that. Jesus' appearance changes. His face changes. It shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light, and then Moses and Elijah are there. So here's what we're looking at today, folks. Jesus is glowing like a nuclear reactor, and he's talking to two dead guys. It sounds fantastic. Why Moses and Elijah, out of all the people, to be up there? The Bible says that there will be a time when they will return, when Elijah will return. In Malachi chapter 4, God says, Malachi writing about four or 500 years before, that says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Deuteronomy 18, we have Moses saying, again, hundreds of years before this, saying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Both of these men had encounters with God on the mountains. They both worked miracles. They both had ministries that they handed over, Moses to, to Joshua, Elijah to Elisha. They represent, in the history of Israel, the law and the prophets, the God-ordained means by which the Lord God communicated to his people. Now, Matthew doesn't explain how the disciples know that this is Moses and Elijah. But Luke adds something about what they were talking to Jesus about in Luke chapter 9. He says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who were appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You know, the Greek word for departure is exodus. Those of you who know some Bible may begin to see here where Matthew is going. Jesus' face is shining, just like Moses on Mount Sinai. And in some sense, just like Moses led his people out of slavery in a dramatic exodus, Jesus will also lead an exodus. And I believe they're also encouraging Jesus. I don't want to make too much of this, but both Moses and Elijah knew from experience what it was like to lead a people and be rejected by them. To lead and love an ungrateful people. But the story here is different than the Moses story. Those of you that are familiar with what happens in, in the book of Exodus, you know that Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, he encounters God, and his face shines. And he actually has to put a veil over it, because the people, you know, they, they have trouble actually looking at it because of the re reflection. He is reflecting God's light. Here, the difference is the light 
is radiating from a person. The light is radiating from a person. It's radiating from Jesus. Moses reflected the light, almost like the moon reflects the sun. Here, Jesus is the sun. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. He says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his... He's the radiance of God's glory. So in other words, if you've seen Jesus, as it says in John, you have seen God, you've seen the Father. He is the exact representation of his being. And as John says in his prologue to his gospel, he says, in him was life, and this life was the light that lights up every human being. So Jesus is radiating light to his disciples. He's having a conversation with Moses and Elijah, And guess who interrupts the conversation? It's Peter. He has to say something. And he says what many of us would probably say in this situation. He says something kind of stupid. It comes out like this. Jesus, (laughs) I'm glad we're here. I really am. I'm really glad you took us up this mountain and we're able to see this. If you want, I'll build three shelters. I'm going to build one for you, Jesus and one for you, Moses, and one for Elijah. I'm glad we're here. It's good that we're here. And you know I'm good with my hands. I can do this. You have to love the Jesus if you want. I'll do that. I wonder if Peter is still thinking of the rebuke that Jesus gave him a week ago. He stepped out of bounds. Now, this is a common theme. What's a common theme? They're terrified. They're terrified. All the accounts of this stress that point. The disciples are terrified. Peter, James, and John are terrified. This is a common theme in the Bible. God shows up, or he sends an angel to go speak to someone, and the first thing that he has to say is, don't be afraid. You know, I've often thought, sometimes I, I get into this mindset, almost like a skeptic. And I think, God, why are you so hidden? You know, if you showed yourself, wouldn't more people, be- and that's what you want, wouldn't more people believe in you? Right? If God were more obvious, if you showed up, wouldn't more people believe in you? And as I reflect on that, as I think of that, I wonder if God seems hidden because we can't handle him. God shows up and we fall to pieces. And I think the reason we can't handle him is because we realize he's dangerous. God's dangerous. Now, I've always thought of that in terms of power. You know, God's dangerous because he's just a lot bigger and stronger than me. So that makes him dangerous. And that's one way to look at it. Almost like we look at electricity. You know, God's dangerous in the way that electricity is dangerous. So anyone who's changed a light fixture without turning off the power or touched an electric fence with a wet metal bar knows that electricity is powerful. And it's dangerous because it's powerful. And I think those analogies are helpful to a point. But you know, with God, it's not about raw power. Isaiah chapter 6 gives us some insight into this. What makes us come undone when we encounter God? 
Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God. And the first thing he says when he sees God, he says, woe is me. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. The first thing he realizes when he sees God is the realization he comes to is that I'm dirty. I'm dirty. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among all my people are the same way. God is dangerous because he is holy. He's dangerous because he's holy. He is dangerous because he is different. He's morally perfect. He's beautiful. When he reveals himself, we are exposed. We're exposed. When we get into that kind of presence, all we think about is our imperfection. I'm thinking of, there's a story, Richard Burton, a great Shakespearean actor from a few generations ago, said the first time he met Elizabeth Taylor, again, this is ancient history for most of us, very extremely stunningly beautiful woman, he says the first time he met her, instinctively he took his hand to cover the side of his face that had been pockmarked by acne when he was a teenager. He had to cover up. And we feel that way too in the presence of this absolute, holy, beautiful God. We want to cover up. So how do you approach a God like that? How do you approach that? You know, in the Old Testament, when Israel left slavery in Egypt, and they were there for 400 years, basically getting abused, God's presence went with them in the form of a cloud. And we see that in this story too. And the cloud guided the people of Israel. The cloud went before them by day, and actually it was a cloud of fire, a pillar of fire at night, so that they can see. And this cloud came between them and their enemies and was their guide. And God had also instructed Moses to build a tabernacle, a tabernacle, a portable tent where God could meet with his people. You know what the tabernacle really was? It was a place where God can live with his people without killing them. Where God's holiness was contained. When Peter says, I want to build shelters, do you know the word for shelter that he's using? The word means tabernacle. Some of your translations say this. Peter is saying... I realize we're in the presence of God and I am starting to unravel and I need a tabernacle. I need a tabernacle to contain God's holiness because if it breaks out, I'm undone. I need some shielding. I need some insulation. I need a tabernacle. Do you know why he didn't have to build any tabernacles on that mountain? Because Jesus... Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus came to be that meeting place between humanity and God, where God's holiness is contained, and we can approach him exposed, but without fear. We need a tabernacle, and he's it. Jesus is the tabernacle. But he's a different kind of tabernacle. Under the old covenant, let's look at that for a little bit. Under the Old Covenant, this is how it worked. The tabernacle was out there. It was there. God's people went under very, very strict circumstances. It was not a casual thing at all. They went to the tabernacle, and then they returned back to their lives. They visited God. 
They made trips to God. They experienced God's glory in the tabernacle. As David says in Psalm 63, he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary, the tabernacle or temple, and beheld your power and your glory. The glory cloud rested on the tabernacle. God was out there in his building, and we are here. And don't most of us approach God that way? God is out there. We make trips to God. And then we come back to our lives. He's out there. We go to him for things we need, things we want. But he's out there. He's in a tabernacle. And then we return to our lives. And we feel that distance. A few weeks ago, we met the groups in the East. We met at, uh, at the Mof's house and had a great time, the small groups in the East. And one thing we talked about is, you know, the theme of the entire Bible is that God wants to live with his people. That's the theme of the entire Bible. It's God living with his people. And let me tell you, that's been a rocky marriage. That has been rough. That's a made-for-TV movie. It's rough. But the best that happened under that old covenant in the Old Testament was God moved into the neighborhood. God set up shop in humanity's neighborhood. And he called it the tabernacle. Jesus is a different kind of tabernacle. He's different. Here's what's different about it. Matthew tells us that the cloud, the sign of God's presence, rested not just on Jesus, the tabernacle. It rested not just on Jesus, but it rested on all of them. They're in the cloud. God's glory was on all of them. And I think what we are seeing here is a picture of Jesus sharing God's glory with us. Yes, you heard that right. What we're seeing here is a picture of God sharing his glory with us. With us. Jesus even says this in John chapter 17. The night before he's arrested, he's praying to his father, and he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Under the old covenant, God moved into the neighborhood. Now, he's getting closer. He's in us. He's in us. What's the whole point of Jesus' stories? I mean, really, what's the whole point? I was thinking about this. The miracles, the healings. You know, God doesn't show us anything that he doesn't intend to share. Let me say this again. What God shows us, he wants to share with us. He wants to share it with us. See, it's not like what I would do. See, those of you that know me know that I can be a bit of a show-off with things. And one thing I'm hoping to one day show off is a nice, shiny, bright sports car. That's what I hope. Yeah, the midlife thing is really kicking in. Yes. I really hope... You know, and with the consent of my lovely wife, we have this conversation. You know, I usually take the position of, look, the kids don't really need to go to college. You know, we have YouTube. <laughs> and they can learn anything they want there. Usually I lose that argument. So we could take that money and put that into maybe a nice Jaguar. For Jaguar for Daddy? 
Yes? Okay? Now, the thing is, if I did get this thing, this lovely car, I would drive this around and I would show it off. It's to show at least part of it. I could argue that, well, this will retain its value over time, but that's not really the reason I would get it. I want to show. I want to show it. And I'm not really that interested in sharing it with everybody that sees it. I'm not going to let everybody drive it. Jesus is different. When he shows us something, he wants to share it with us. It's as if the car belonged to him and he stopped every block and gave somebody the keys and said, I want you to have this. How different that is. So what he's showing us in this passage is this light that he is. He wants to put that in us. He wants to put that in us. That light. And again, it says in John's Gospel, Jesus is saying this to his his disciples. He said, the Holy Spirit will take from what is mine and give it to you. He's going to give it to you. So you're going to have this. This uncreated light is going to be in you. It's going to be in you. So what does that mean? That means we get to share in, in his love. The love that he has with the Father. Perfect love. No rivalry. We get to participate in that. What about the other stuff, John? What about the miracles? He calls us to participate in that through prayer, through the laying on of hands. He's not just showing us to show off. He's showing us so so that we might share in this. He wants this for us. He wants this for us as people, as a church. How do we respond to this? what do we say to this? I think the answer is right here in the text. What did the voice say? Now there's a voice here from the cloud. The voice says, this is my beloved son. There's only one other place in Matthew's gospel where we hear a voice. And that's at Jesus' baptism where he says the same thing. The voice says, this is my son. You have to love the way God the Father just affirms Jesus. This is my son. My beloved, my priceless son. I'm crazy about him. But he says something else that he doesn't say at Jesus' baptism. He says something else here. He says, listen to him. Moses and Elijah were wonderful servants. But now the master of the house is here. Listen to him. Listen to him. Yes, but God, what? No, listen to him. Yes, but what about? No, listen to him. Yes, but no, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. How do we listen to him? How do we do that? A few things. We recognize the unique authority and light of Jesus. We recognize the unique authority and light of Jesus. Do you notice that Peter wanted to build three tabernacles? Right? One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, he was... Putting Jesus on the same level as them, okay, a no-no, yeah. But he was also failing to understand how radically different Jesus is. Jesus is not a new and improved Moses. (laughs) He is not the latest version of Elijah. And I've wondered if this is a danger to us as a church. Now, one great thing about Gateway, I (laughs) I don't think this church is in danger of sinking into abject paganism. 
I don't think you're going to come here one Sunday and see, you know, pagan rites or, you know, sacrifices going on. I don't think that's going to, I don't think it's going to happen here in Mercer. It's not going to happen. There are people here that are, that are really well-grounded in the truth. They're really well-grounded in their faith. And, you know, some of you have spent years pouring into other people's lives and people have poured into your lives. And it shows, it shows that there are some rock-solid people here in this church. Rock-solid but I wonder, I wonder if our danger is we may want to mix Moses and Elijah with Jesus. We may want to keep Moses because we like that external rule book. We like the checklist. We like something, a standard that we can use to judge ourselves and judge other people. And what happens when we do that? We get performance-oriented Christianity that really becomes all about me. And instead of an inner transformation as we learn to walk with this uncreated light within us, instead we get a gospel of sin management. And year after year after year, we remain unchanged. And Elijah, I think some of us are more comfortable relating to God based on an external word that we have to go to and visit and come back instead of as James says in his book, humbly accepting the word that has been planted in us. We recognize the unique light and authority of Jesus. We also respond to this by making Jesus the center of our lives. We become Jesus people. End point. That becomes our identity. More than anything else. More than consumerism. More than our sexuality more than our jobs, more than our station in life, whether we are married or single, this becomes our primary identity. We become, we're Jesus people. And we don't care what other people think. We also make his words our chief meditation. We take the Jesus stories, the gospels, and we saturate ourselves in them. We swim in them. We drench ourselves with them. We eat his words. We gnaw on them as a dog chews a bone. I was thinking the other day how most of my energy in my thought life, I really think, or a good part of it, is focused toward me thinking about how to get what I want. I realized that the other day. Wow, I spent a lot of energy thinking about how do I get what I want. Some of it is, you know, good things. You know, how do I get... You know, my next meal. What do I want for lunch? Um, some of it is not so good, but it's, all, it's about me, I realize. What if I changed that and changed those thoughts into Jesus' words and chewed on them, made them a part of my life? How different that would be. So we're going to take those words when he says, love your brother from your heart. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. Greater things than I've done, you're going to do. Yes, church, the miracles, the life transformations, you're going to do greater things. That's not John Malala speaking, that's Jesus speaking. You're going to do that. We're going to learn how to do that as a church. And we will respond as a church by ordering our lives together so that we do what Jesus says to do. Dallas Willard said something, he said a lot of things great Christian teacher. He said, you know, in most churches, you know, you have, you have structures in place 
that really act to prevent people from encountering God. What? Yes, he said most churches, they are structured in such a way that we prevent people from encountering God. You know what we have to say to this? And especially as leaders, we have to say, God forbid. Oh no, we can't do that. We cannot do that. So we have to figure out, are we doing this? Are we blocking God? We're going to learn what it means to be the tabernacle of God together. We're going to learn what it means to have Christ in us. And we're going to learn what it means to listen to him. Now I have to say, I know that some of you today, you're in the dark. You're in the dark. You're on that train. He has the light and the authority to lead you out. Some of you are on the floor and you're starting to, to cough and to choke. He has the authority to lead you out. Look to him. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we move forward, we're going to do communion. I just want to say there are going to be some people that are down on the left-hand side, my left, that are going to be praying. And if you need a touch from God today, whatever you need, whatever you want to bring to him today, don't leave today without that. Don't leave today without touching, without allowing God to touch you in some way. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, I thank you that you have set yourself up in our lives. You have offered us. You are so willing to share yourself with us. And God, I know that a lot of times I just don't want that. Um, I guess there are a lot of reasons for that. And I thank you that you constantly, you call us up the mountain. You're calling us up the mountain as a church. God, there are so many reasons why we may not want to go up there with you. There's weirdness. <laughs> There's suffering up there. We may not want to go up. God, lead us. Please. Please, God, lead us. We are desperate for you. We are desperate. And we thank you for your love of us, your care for us. In Jesus' name.